But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, for you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That passage is from Isaiah chapter 43. In this and the variety of other scriptures we've already heard this morning and those that we will hear, I hope we will hear these echoes of how beautiful it is to hear that God is with us. What a blessing it is for us as his people to be able to claim the truth that if God is for us, then who can be against us? We've been wrestling through Nahum, and last week we dealt with the fact that facing God as his enemy, there is no resistance to be made against him. There is no mercy to be shown to God's enemies, and there is no hope to be found for those who remain as his enemies. We closed with <coughs> we closed with the pronouncement desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. And this morning we pick up a vivid picture of Nineveh as a den of lions. We're then going to move into the firm declaration that God is against Nineveh. And finally and most graphically, we hear what it looks like for him to be against them. So we'll read through the whole passage and I want you to steal yourselves for a no-holds-barred indictment this morning, probably some of the strongest language to be found in God's Word. Turn with me to Nahum chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we'll read through to chapter 3, verse 7. Again, Nahum chapter 2, verses 11, through to chapter 3, verse 7. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled his prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Into chapter 3, 
Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And for all of the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and full of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? You can probably understand at this point why Nahum won't often or ever grace the top of many preachers' easy-to-preach and eager-to-preach lists. It is not a feel-good message here. But as with all of Scripture, it is more than worth preaching and more than worth God's people hearing and knowing. It's hard for me to believe that we are now firmly entering the Christmas season. Next week we'll breach into December. And Matthew one twenty three is going to be one that's going to start to crop up a lot for us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which all of us know means God with us. That God would be with his people is of greater value than we could ever imagine, than we could ever quite fathom. Another great promise of this is in Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and then they will be my people. I hope this theme of God with us, you see, is a constant one throughout Scripture. And we understand that today's passage provides a glimpse into the alternative. What happens when God is against us? As I said earlier, we start with that image of the lion's den. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. The city of Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians regularly identified themselves with lions. Images of lions are found to have adorned their palaces all over. Huge statues of lions with the heads of kings. Their kings imported and hunted lions. They claimed to have hunted lions with their own bare hands. Statues and reliefs of lions all throughout their palaces. It should not surprise us the might and the violence of these animals would appeal to such a nation as Assyria. And the Assyrian lions had filled their den with the spoils of many nations. In verse 9 of chapter 2, we get a great description of these spoils. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, 
There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. There's this huge pile of treasure and plunder and spoils, but the question asked now by Nahum is this, where is the lion's den? These great and powerful people with their tremendous walls 80 feet high, palaces beyond imagining, where have they gone? What is left of them? The answer, there is nothing left. The cause of this downfall is not left to our imagination. The passage doesn't go into who brings this about, but the cause is clear. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. The first of two times we'll hear this this morning. And I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. When the Bible speaks about the Lord being with his people, that is attended by blessing and victory. God's care for his people, the prosperity of those with whom he dwells. But this is the exact opposite. The Lord declares to Nineveh, I am against you. All of the benefits of the Lord being for you, Nineveh is about to receive the opposite. We are very clear on the fact that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Lord, who is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. To be Nineveh in this situation is to be devoid of all good and perfect gifts and to instead be the recipients only of the wrath and justice of our Lord. This brings us to the declaration of woe against Nineveh in chapter 3. It starts with this word woe, and this word was very often used in funeral processions, being exclaimed by those following mourning the dead. But rather than mourning here, Nahum pronounces this woe with excitement, celebrating the upcoming funeral coming for Nineveh, celebrating the end of such a wicked nation. Chapter 3, verse 1 gives us the justification for such a judgment being proclaimed. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. There's Nineveh's violence, their deceit, and their ravenous desire for more and more spoils that have fed their wicked actions. There was no part of Nineveh's interactions with anyone besides themselves, and maybe not even then, that was upright and commendable. They took by force, and what they didn't take by force, they took through deceitful and backhanded politics and all the while storing up more and more and more for themselves as plunder. Everything was to continue to build their hoard, to worship their false gods with the plunder and the treasure of other nations that they have conquered. Remember that our Savior said in Matthew 6, 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Nineveh's treasure was in their hoard. Their treasure was in their false gods. They were bent upon earthly treasures and possessions. And for their utter disregards of anyone but themselves, anyone's pleasure or joy but their own, they now stand accused. And what has that earned them? It earns them the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. In this moment in Nahum's oracle, he returns to a vision of a ferocious battle yet to come. But as you read this, and even as the Assyrians may have heard it, this would have been exciting language because this is what they inflicted upon so many nations. It was them with the cracking of the whip and the rumbling wheel and the spear and the chariot and the horse. It was Nineveh who was this conqueror. They were used to stacking heaps of their enemies' corpses doling out death without end, placing bodies on spikes around cities. And yet now they are to be on the receiving end, their own wickedness about to be repaid upon them. And if that were not enough, we come to verses 4 to 7. These verses have language that it barely seems fitting to be read in church. And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and the peoples with her charms, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle." And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Reading that, a person scarcely knows how to respond. And what can we as God's people take from this? We are promised that all Scripture is Spirit-inspired, breathed out by God, useful for teaching and reproof and for training in righteousness and for correction. Once the shock of the language wears off, we should come to see that there is important truth here. Nineveh was an absolutely incredible place. A population of hundreds of thousands. It's estimated that since Jonah's day where there was over 100,000 that Nineveh had grown to being two or even 300,000 people. There were unbelievable gorgeous gardens. Freshwater aqueducts running through the city irrigating and bringing fresh water to the people there. Palaces that were 350,000 square feet. Multiple of them incredible libraries, 
endless statues and walls of art. There was a portico with 43-ton bronze pillars, solid bronze built for displaying the artwork and the conquering power of these people. This was a center for art and culture and commerce, you name it. It was made to be the center of the world. It was the largest city in the world at that time. Recovered relics of Nineveh still bring people to museums every year. And anyone in that day would have wanted to go see Nineveh just to get a taste of what it had to offer. Honestly, I can't help but draw a comparison to the modern Las Vegas. I've been to that city twice, and I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around the scale of some of the features to be seen. Even from a more family-minded standpoint, which was the nature of my visits years ago, there's so much to see and do. There's shows and attractions and food and events and just amazing architecture. But the comparisons between Nineveh and Las Vegas don't stop at fascinations and grandeur. Our passage compares Nineveh to the prostitute whose charms and grace have lured so many to destruction. Even on what someone might call a family-minded version of a trip to Vegas, it becomes clear that there is more to that city than just flash and glam. The vileness and the poison reveal themselves without prompting. Maybe it's just the walk through a casino to a restaurant, knowing the lives that have been ruined there and the addictions that have been fed. Maybe it's the billboards offering any form of illicit entertainment. Maybe it's the offers on the street by advertisers. But Vegas has rightfully earned its name of Sin City, a place where vice, however they want to dress it up, is celebrated and plied from every corner. Nineveh was its own kind of sin city. It had set itself up as a hub of the ancient world, a destination to see and adore and also to fear. But God promises to lift the veil and show the world the real Nineveh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. The allure and charm of Nineveh lasted only for a moment. Once you were ensnared in her web of sin and wickedness, she became as sinful and wicked as a person could imagine. Under the guise of beauty, she lured nations, only to bleed them dry and leave them at the wayside. Vegas has tried so hard to produce something of a family-friendly atmosphere. Look, you can also do all these family-friendly things here. But it only takes a few seconds to start to see the unsavory underbelly. And Nineveh has dressed itself up as this beautiful city full of wickedness. God now promises to show Nineveh's underbelly to the world. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 5. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. The Lord is exposing Nineveh and all her shameful secrets and sinful wickedness for what she really is. Not enticing and alluring as she would try to sell herself, but as foul, or as Nahum 114 calls her, vile. Verses 6 and 7, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? The two words that really tend to get people's attention as we read through our passage this morning have to be the words whorings and filth. Both clear words of contempt. And if you were to look around where other such words are being used, you would almost always find them used in regards to the worship of false gods and idols. Israel was often a accused of prostituting themselves or whoring themselves before the gods of the other nations. And God threatens to throw filth at Nineveh. He promises to throw filth at Nineveh. And this filth that is being thrown at them is the same filth of idolatry that they have propagated all throughout their realm. All of the wickedness and idol worship and unfaithfulness that they had demonstrated was to be returned upon themselves many times over. Their own idols would be carried out of the city by their conquerors. It had come time for God to make an example of Nineveh, to hold her deceitful beauty, turn to vileness and filth up for the world to see. This is what happens to them who would worship any but the one true God. This is what happens if you would try to destroy my people. This is what happens when you do not hear, heed the warnings of the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, as Jonah confessed him. Romans twelve nineteen, Paul quotes Deuteronomy thirty two thirty five when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. As far as we are concerned, we are to live at peace with everyone, loving our enemies, praying for those who would persecute us, turning the other cheek, doing good to those who hate us. And that goes against every fiber of our natural man. We want to take back and defend ourselves against injustice. How could we possibly follow Scripture's command? Remember, Nahum's writing to comfort Israel. The comfort to them here, Israel doesn't need to take any revenge. God is about to do his thing. Nineveh is about to get what they deserve at his hand. 
for us when we are afflicted with a legitimate wrong where we have been sinned against, we naturally want to respond in kind. But the vengeance that wells up in our hearts is imperfect and sinful even as we are, even as the one who sinned against us is imperfect and sinful. But the vengeance of the Lord is perfect and just. He does not go too far, and he always goes far enough. There are no hasty judgments or snap decisions. He does not judge imperfectly or without knowing all of the facts of the matter at hand. And we can bet that his judgment, if it is warranted, will be far more severe than anything we can dole out. We can be comforted. And we can live according to the difficult command of Scripture to love in the face of hate and wickedness and sinfulness in part because we know that it is not our judgment that this fellow sinner need fear. I say in part because we also have to recognize our own sinfulness and wickedness, see ourselves in the one who is being judged. We have no righteousness of our own to offer. We have no leg to stand on on our own to say, I am better than that guy. We deserve the same wrath that is being poured out on the one that we would have God judge. Forever throughout Scripture, God is concerned with caring for and correcting his children, even in his judgment of other nations. Like I said, God's people were known for their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And he wants to drive his people back to himself and remind them of what they risk when they are unfaithful to him. When they read of Nineveh, the prostitute and her unfaithfulness, when they see the spectacle of Nineveh destroyed, that too should serve as motivation for their own holiness and devotion and fear of the Lord. They see what God did to Nineveh and go, we're supposed to be God's people and we're being unfaithful to him. How much more seriously will he judge us? Because remember, the Assyrians were originally brought in by God to judge God's people for their unfaithfulness. Paul says in Romans 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In the wickedness of the world, we should see our own wickedness, our own capability for sin against the holy standard of God's law. In the judgment of the world, those who would deny the Lord, we should see the judgment that we too deserve. And in our own salvation, we should see our own personal unworthiness to be saved as we have been, that we might be humbled and forever grateful that God would choose to save even us. Jonah was judged for this. He was all upset about the plant that grew and wilted in a day, not at his own work, but 
not upset that God would utterly destroy a city of thousands. He was blind to his own wickedness, only seeing that they were worse. But now, after Jonah's warning and Nineveh's failure to learn from said warning, Nineveh no longer has an offer of leniency or salvation from the Lord. Their judgment has come. But we need to remember that the world around us does still have an offer of salvation from the Lord. We don't know who God is going to call to himself, regardless of their wicked deeds. I think I've mentioned this before, but in my Sunday school month or two ago, I talked about how renowned serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer apparently sur surrendered his life to Christ in prison. And we hesitate to even think that such a one might be among those we meet in heaven. We think, how could he be there? But when we do so, we belittle our own wickedness. When we think, if God can't save him, then he definitely can't save us because we are just as wicked, just in different ways. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And whether we have fallen short by a mile or fallen short by an inch, we have fallen short and we all deserve the punishment of God. Once judgment has been cast, there is no comforter left for the recipient. There is no one left to grieve for such a one, as we have read was being told of Nineveh. But until it has been passed, we must treat each person each fellow bearer of the image of God as one whom God can save, a potential sinner saved by grace just like us. So this morning we hear woe pronounced against Nineveh. We should let that shocking imagery burn into our minds the severity of God's judgment. We should let that affect us. Let it affect our will to avoid sin. When we look at the incredible judgment against Nineveh, we should look at that, and that should be one of the cards up our sleeve. Of We look at our own sin and be like, I want no part of that judgment, so that sin doesn't look so sweet anymore. Let it affect your will to avoid sin, lest you too be judged. Flee from all appearances of evil, pursuing instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And we also should let it affect our interaction with others. That we would not take the place of a judge to mete out a sentence that we also deserve. That we wouldn't write people off and say, that person is beyond God's help, beyond God's saving. Instead, loving each one and trying in every way available to us to open their eyes to the salvation that is at hand. And I want to point out here that this judgment is the final judgment. We don't get to say this person is saved or unsaved, but particularly within the church, we also are commanded to judge among ourselves and hold one another to an account. So this is not a judgment of your sinning, we need to fix that. This is the judgment of 
you are sinful and wicked and you are damned and you are saved. We cannot judge who is damned or who is saved, but we can judge when someone is being, who claims Christ, is engaging in sinful activity, and we should because we should be calling one another to better and to account. And if Israel had done that more, if Judah had done that more, they likely would not have found themselves in the same plight that they were in. But as far as those who do not know Christ, we cannot treat even one of them as being beyond the reach of God because we do not know God's heart. We do not know whom God has called and whom God has not. And we see the impending judgment. We see what is coming, and it is our responsibility to let them know. Every man, woman, and child that we meet should have no excuse to say that they didn't know. And that they didn't know both salvation that comes from following Christ, the joy and the glory and the mercy and the happiness that comes from following Christ, and the judgment that waits for those who reject him. There's a reason why Christ spoke so much about hell. He spoke about hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible. He spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven because it is real and it is rightly to be feared. And that is why we must speak both the truth of the promise and the judgment. And everyone needs to know that truth. And by God's grace, by the working of his Holy Spirit and by his great call, perhaps he will grant the gift of faith to those who would believe. It is an incredible thing that God would say that he is for us. Imagine being Judah at this point. They've, at this point, just been waiting for the shoe to drop where Assyria would finally wipe them off the map, come for round two against Jerusalem, and they would end up like Israel. But God is for them. Want to know what God is for them looks like? Read this. God is for them because he is going to show Nineveh what happens to those that come up against his people. And we can know that God is for us. God is not going to conquer every giant in your life and everything is not going to be roses and sunshine. But the great enemy, the final enemy of death, the final enemy of sin and Satan and the grave, all of those have been conquered by Christ for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God that God is for us. And God is against those whom have rejected him. And that is a terrible, terrible fate. Worse than anything we could imagine. And as far as we are concerned, as far as we are able to affect things, it is our job to do everything in our power to not let anyone fall to that fate that doesn't have to. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are for us, for your people. And we thank you that you are for us, for your own glory and for our good. Lord, we know that if you are for us, that we can pursue all of the things that you have promised in your word and all of the things that you have commanded us in your word because you will give us the strength to do so. Lord, we pray for those whom right now you have your face sent against, those who would still be counted among your enemies. Each one of us likely has someone in their heart or their mind that they know are your enemies and that yet we love them. And Lord, we pray by work of your Holy Spirit that you might save these ones whom have called themselves your enemies. That they might not learn what it means that you are against them. And Lord, we thank you that you are only for us, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have no leg to stand on, no reason to boast, that we can beg entirely to the finished and accomplished work of Christ. Lord, help us to cling to that, not to our own righteousness, not to our own abilities and aims. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truths contained therein. And we pray that you would work upon our hearts through your truth as we go from here this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.